Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everybody and welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. I'm Alan. And I'm Tara. We hope you enjoyed our last episode. It was a little dark, but what can we say? Not all Valentine's Day stories need to be mushy, right? No, not all of them. No. <laughs> all right. So first off, let's talk about the insanity of last week's uh, snow apocalypse, real quick. Oh uh, my gosh. So I may have crossed my fingers for a few snow days, um, but I really didn't want an entire week of I it. I crossed my finger for like one. Just one. Yeah. Maybe two, because sometimes I like to sleep in mm-hmm. a couple days. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were lucky enough to not have lost power, have any real issues. Um, aside from having to navigate our back stairs, which were a solid sheet of ice, and uh, try not to be impaled by the Night King sword that was hanging off the house. <laughs> right. Um, and really until the boil water advisory, which really wasn't more than just an inconvenience, it was really just a, a rather chilly TV and movie binge watching spree. Yeah. It was all right. It, it was, was all right. All right. Yeah. Speaking of binge watching, um, everyone must check out The Buried by the Bernards on Netflix. Uh, it's a reality series based on the family-owned funeral parlor on Lamar. And it is fantastic. It really is. It's so very Memphis. I loved it so much. <laughs> um, it's hilarious, but also very endearing. You can really tell that the family loves each other so, so much. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Anyway, the snow has been incredibly beautiful, but we're definitely happy to see it melting away in the sunshine. It's crazy. Our yards look like nothing has happened, and it's almost 70 degrees. Right. So, you know, you go to from zero to 70 in a week. Right. Um, but I think we're all ready to get back to living in only one historic event. Yes, true. Considering we have been housebound for a week, we hadn't been able to drive around the city like we normally do. It's one of our favorite things. It is. Uh, If it's not apparent to our listeners, we really like wandering around Midtown and Downtown, visiting the local shops and seeing how things are being renovated or rebuilt or what new shop has popped up in the last few months. Um, and speaking of local shops, uh, this past weekend we did a, uh, hit up Walking Pants Curiosities, yeah. which is on G.E. Patterson mm-hmm. and Maine, and we got to visit with Britches. Most importantly. Yes. Most importantly. It's the cutest puppy in the universe. And uh, we bought this great um, Memphis tray to like put stuff in. <laughs> um, it's uh, made by Animade Designs. It's fantastic local artist yeah. and it's awesome. So and you can find her stuff at Walking Pants. Yes, you can and everyone should visit there. Yeah. The original parts of Memphis are going through a great revival lately actually and uh, we love it. We do love it but I'm going to throw a caveat in there though. You know, I am not terribly crazy about all the apartments with retail space below that have been popping up lately. I I just don't like them. Well, I don't think anybody does except for the people that own them. I think so. I mean, I'm fine with it if it's already, if they're in already built buildings like what's happening on Main Street, because, you know, we would love to occupy one of those. No kidding. Um, But I don't think we need loads of new ones to overpopulate downtown and midtown, but that could just be me. Yeah. Maybe not, though. From what I hear, (laughs) I'm not the only one. But anyway, continue. Not long ago, while reading the Daily Memphian, we came across the story of an iconic downtown building going up for sale. And I looked up the price. Don't ever look up the price. My dad once told me, if you have to ask, it's too expensive. And uh, he was correct. (laughs) I think I got, if it's heavy, it's too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, by now, everyone probably knows that the building that has housed Ernestine and Hazel's for over a century is up for sale. And I'm very sad that we can't afford it. Me too. And it's just sitting there waiting for some hometown savior to come in and scoop it up and bring the restaurant back to life. Yes. And when we were dreaming out loud about buying it and what we would do with it. (laughs) We do. Um, Alan informed me that he has never been to Ernestine and Hazel's. And he has not ever eaten a Soul Burger. Nope. And admittedly, I was a little shocked considering he's done gigs on Beale Street for years. Uh, but I guess none of his friends thought to grab a late night burger at a haunted dive bar. Well, we were already at a bar. No, so, that's true. You know. But even though I'd been there numerous times, it wasn't until the last couple of years that I know the full history of the building and what had previously inhabited it. So without further ado, let's dive into the past of this notorious local haunt. The spot that's now occupied by Ernestine and Hazel's at 531 South Main Street was once the exact opposite of what it was to become in the future. In the late 1800s, it was built as a church, complete with fancy doors and a steeple. The area that the corner building occupies was considered South Memphis. It was a residential area that remained so until the early 1900s when the railroad was built. South Memphis opened two new train stations and 50 passenger cars would come through every day. At that point, the area became able to support businesses. Sadly, the church burned down sometime in the early 1900s. I couldn't find an exact date, but the assessor's office lists the current building's date as 1918. That year, a new building was erected, the same one you see today, and it was purchased by Abe Plow and turned into one of his Pantay's drugstores. I guess that's how you say that. I think so. That's what we're going to go with. Yes, Pantay's will be the word for the day. Um, Abe Plough is, is a name synonymous with Memphis. In 1908, he borrowed $125 from his father and started his own business, Plough Chemical Company. He peddled his antiseptic healing oil that he created in a room above his father's shop to the drugstores in and around Memphis. His patent medicine took off, and within a couple of years, he doubled his profits. And uh, a side note, patent medicines are basically ones that are marketed as medicines but have no proven effectiveness. Um, They are protected by trademarks, but their ingredients are generally not completely disclosed. You'll often hear of them referred to as tonics or elixirs. Um, And also, second side note, you can hear a lot about patent medicines if you're interested in that kind of thing on one of my favorite podcasts called Sawbones. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway, we're not saying his product wasn't legit. Who knows? Uh, But he did go on to do great things. So even if it wasn't legit, it gave him a start in the business. Right. With his additional money, Plow found his way into cosmetics and sunscreen businesses, and they eventually acquired St. Joseph's Aspirin brand. Over the next 100 years, Plow Inc. became a multi-million dollar company partnering with Sharing Company. Sharing Plow and the Plow Foundation became a major philanthropic entity in Memphis. But let's rewind. Let's. Plow opened Pante's drugstores in the 1930s. Apparently, Pante's was the Walgreens of its day. There so were, it was on every corner, literally it, every corner. Uh, yes, there were seven, no, actually. <laughs> no, there really were. There were seven of well, them. Well, there may be every corner at that point in Memphis. Yeah. Exactly. Seven on Main Street and in the downtown area, which, you know, considering what downtown was at that time, it was basically every corner. Mm-hmm. So you are correct. <laughs> Um, it was during the time that he owned Pantay's that Plow started to expand his brand and continue on to find his fame. Now, in the building on South Main, Plow only used the bottom floor of the building for his pharmacy slash sundry store. So he rented the upstairs to two beauticians, Ernestine Mitchell and Hazel Jones. 
Side note, a sundry is basically a general store that sells miscellaneous items. Yes. And one of the products that Plow had made was a hair straightening product, and it worked quite well. Uh, Not only did the ladies use it in their salon, it was also being used all over the eastern part of the country. With Plow's success and newfound fortune, he gave, or I've also heard, sold for a very inexpensive price, the building to Ernestine and Hazel. This transaction occurred sometime in the 1950s, from what I could tell. Uh, Having no interest in running a sundry, the ladies decided to turn the downstairs area into a jazz cafe. Ernestine's husband, Andrew, who went by the name Sunbeam, you know, like you do. Yes, it's fantastic. (laughs) Opened a venue nearby for musicians called Club Paradise. This was not the first business venture of Sunbeam Mitchell, though. Throughout his years as a promoter, Mitchell had opened up several music venues, a restaurant, and even a hotel for African Americans, which was scarce in those times. Ernestine kept the books and ran the hotel. She did. And uh, actually, this is another side note. I tried to find out if Sunbeam Mitchell was somehow related to Willie or Boo Mitchell of the Stax and Royal Studios fame, but I couldn't find any connection mm-hmm. uh, aside from them all being in the music business. So if anyone knows, just let us know. Uh, Mitchell's a common name. It is. It could just be a happy accident, but it was all kind of going on in that time period. Right. So, you know. Anyway, uh, the Mitchells and Plow were not strangers to each other either. One of Sunbeam's music venues, uh, Club Handy, and the Mitchell Hotel were on the second and third floor of the Pantay's Drugs, which again was owned by Plow, on Beale Street, which uh, Wet Willies currently occupies. Right. And seeing as they had such a good relationship, it made sense that the Ernestine and Hazel deal went down like it did. Club Paradise was the largest and most prestigious nightclub in Memphis. It could hold up to 3,200 people. Numerous acts such as locals Bobby Blue Bland, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, and Muddy Waters played there, as well as big-named acts like Ike and Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and Sam Cooke. According to some, playing at the Paradise was like playing at Carnegie Hall. The club was located on G.E. Patterson, so it was not a far trek to Ernestine and Hazel's. And once the acts finished their set at Club Paradise, they would head to Ernestine and Hazel's for good food, good drinks, good conversation, and good company. And as they say, after the party is the after party. Right. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened in Ernestine and Hazel's. Uh, the club became a famous spot for those musicians. They would stroll down for some cheap soul food, good alcohol, uh, before retiring for the night to the local Lorraine Motel, or possibly for an hour of fun in one of the upstairs rooms. <laughs> Sketchy. Mm. And to make additional money, the ladies offered up the upstairs rooms as a brothel for local ladies of the night. Uh, apparently, benches lined the walls of the hallway, so the men waiting their turn had a place to relax. And there were eight rooms upstairs that patrons could pay by the hour for use. And it was said uh, that not only sex work, but drug use was also an activity of those who hung out upstairs. And while it was not said the sisters condoned this activity, they certainly turned a blind eye to it. Ernestine and Hazel's jazz club thrived for a couple of decades, but the 70s and 80s, things started to take a turn for the worse. Mitchell's Club Paradise shut down in the 70s, as did Stax, which was nearby, so the regular crowd wasn't coming in as frequently. Uh, The 70s were a bad time in general for downtown Memphis. Beale Street was fenced off, except for Schwab's. Uh, the Peabody had shut down. The Orpheum was a Malco theater that showed X-rated movies for some of the time. Crime had escalated, and it was something like a wasteland. During the 70s, about 500 people lived in downtown. 
It was said that more people were in jail, about a thousand people, than actually lived downtown, which is actually accurate. Right. Uh, People didn't frequent the area anymore. It wasn't safe. The cafe, however, was holding its own for the time. In the early 80s, you could still get a hogmaw dinner or neck bone for less than $3, and the fried fish would cost you about 20 cents more. I cannot hear hogmaw without thinking of the office. I want to say hog mama. <laughs> oh. By the way, hog mama is pig stomach. It it is. It is. Um Now I'm just going to be thinking about the office. <laughs> so, sorry, continue. <laughs> um uh, while the cafe and the brothel kept the cash flow stable, the late 80s brought about more challenges. Ernestine and Hazel were getting older and not able to oversee the business like they had before, and changes were coming to downtown. The creation of Memphis and May started a renewal of downtown. A Memphis and May started with the Beale Street Music Fest in 1977, and over the years added additional events to eventually become what it is today. And the festival breathed life back into our dying downtown. With the positive changes that were starting to happen, a brothel wasn't something a visiting tourist wanted to see. Well, most visiting tourists, that is. Right. Or needed to see. Uh, Ernestine and Hazel knew it was time to retire. They had to find the perfect person to take over their property and do it justice. This is where Russell, Russell George dances into the picture. George was born and raised in Memphis by parents that had a love for good music. From a young age, George listened to soul, jazz, and the blues. He was the only white kid to enter the James Brown dance competition held at the Coliseum. At 10 years old, George had all the right moves, and Brown crowned him as the winner. By the age of 15, he had opened his first bar in an apartment downtown. He called it Jefferson in the Rear. So he was 15 and running an illegal bar, so what did you expect it to be called? (laughs) By the age of 20, he was a band manager and a dancer with a local R&B band. He also helped open Murphy's on Madison and Silky's on Beale. And in the early 90s, a promoter friend of his convinced George to look at a property on South Main. And he began to reminisce about what the venue was like back when B.B. King and Ray Charles would visit. He knew he could bring it back to its former glory. George did some renovations, and on St. Patrick's Day 1993, Ernestine and Hazel's reopened as a full-fledged bar. And he didn't want a wide variety of foods or local fare. He wanted a good burger that people could enjoy after a night of dancing, drinking, and frivolity. (laughs) He called it the Soul Burger. Apparently, the Soul Burger went through several trial and error stages before setting on what you get today. George realized that you don't have to pile on the toppings to have a good burger. You just need some cheese, pickles, sautéed onions, and the secret sauce. The burger is served with a bag of chips and either a beer or a Coke. And if you're from the South, you know that Coke is a generic term for any soft drink, regardless of the flavor or manufacturer. <laughs> right. Uh, there is a small eight-seat bar on the second floor where the brothel was located that was open on the weekends. It had been run by a fella named Nate since George opened the bar. And Nate had known George for years. He worked with him at Murphy's. And from what I've read, Nate was the go-to guy for all things Ernestine and Hazel's. It was even mentioned that he might have known Miss Hazel in, in more than just a friendly way. Uh, he said that, he, that they had had a few dates prior to him marrying his wife. Mm-hmm. Hazel passed away in 1995 and Ernestine in 1998. By that time, George and Ernestine had apparently become pretty good friends. And besides being the best dive bar in the country, Ernestine and Hazel's is also known for being one of the most haunted. Because, of course, we're going to throw some kind of of haunting in one of our shows. Uh, It's reported that 13 people have died in the building. 
and they recently even found some bones in the walls. Uh, they were sent out for testing, but I don't know if it was ever published what kind of remains they were. But maybe it was someone who met their demise upstairs. It's getting kind of poish. It is. <laughs> the identity of all those who died within the walls are not known, but it's speculated that some were the sex workers. One might have been a John who didn't treat his lady with the respect she deserved. And the final one, well, we'll talk about that later. Ernestine and Hazel's isn't just your typical haunted atmosphere, though. One of the most haunted things in the building is the jukebox. And you might say, what an odd thing to be haunted, or how do you know? Well, there have been numerous reports of the jukebox coming to life on its own, without money having been put in it. And generally speaking, the box world will cater its song choice to whatever subject you've been talking about. Here are a couple of the stories that have been told by Karen Brownlee, who managed and tended the bar at Nursing Hazel's for almost two decades. Uh, the day James Brown died, she was talking to a co-worker about it, and I Feel Goods randomly started playing. Um, another one was uh, a woman who had just signed her divorce papers stopped in to celebrate with some friends and Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E. I almost said S-E. That's not how you spell <laughs> That's divorce. That's not how you spell divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E came blaring out. Uh, one of the paranormal groups had come to spend the evening at the bar and they were talking to George about exorcism and the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil started playing. And another night, a businessman came in telling a story about how a coworker threw up in a cab and how awful it smelled. And moments later, What's That Smell by Leonard Skinner came on. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <laughs> During one investigation, the interviewer and Brownlee were sitting at the bar just as it opened, and the jukebox, jukebox wasn't on yet, and they were talking about what a rough night it was the night before. Suddenly, the jukebox started playing Everybody is a Star by Sly and the Family Stone. Brownlee believes that it was Ernestine. Then moments later, without warning, the jukebox just stops. Over the years, there have been countless paranormal investigations and ghost tours that have happened at Ernestine and Hazel's. And due to the number of deaths that occurred in the establishment, it doesn't seem terribly far-fetched, for those who believe in that kind of thing, to have an experience at the bar. It's been reported that you get a feeling of sadness when you go upstairs and a feeling of relief, like a weight's been lifted when you go back down. One of the employees went upstairs for something and came running back down and right out the door. And whatever he saw upstairs scared him to death. And apparently he won't ever go back up there. <laughs> uh, and people have also said that they felt hands touching them when they go upstairs. And I bet it's the spirits of the ladies who used to work there trying to beckon you into a room. <laughs> uh, the story from the investigator that heard everybody is a star. Well, he had set up several cameras over two nights trying to capture some activity on the second floor. He said the black room was most active, and all the rooms up there have different color names because they're all painted different colors, I suppose. And the black room housed an old record player with an AM-FM dial, and the record player no longer worked, but the radio did, and it randomly blasts out music, and when you're not in the room, faint whispers can be heard from inside, and when a comment was made about the spirits not liking the cameras... Loud knocks could be heard coming from the room as well. Brownlee told a particularly memorable story to the investigator and his friend. She said that a patron who had gone up to the black room was overcome with emotion while being in the room. She wrote a letter expressing her feelings. She said she felt a woman's troubled and saddened spirit and somehow knew the girl had been stabbed. Brownlee confirmed that there was a stabbing in that room and it's likely the person, that the person died in there as well. 
And orbs can be seen floating in almost every picture that is taken there. And I can account for that. Um, I'll even post a picture from a class project where we did a photo shoot there. And in every picture um, that we had, and, and then that one as well, you could see an orb. And there are also reports of an occasional shadowy face in a picture, too. There's a very endearing story from Karen Brownlee, too. Her son had passed away from a gunshot wound. When she found out the news, she was obviously devastated. Brownlee talked to Ernestine from time to time when she was sitting alone at the bar one day. She just started talking to her, asking for a sign that her son was okay. She said all of a sudden, a little baby bird came hopping up to her from over one of the booths. Uh, He just came right up to her and looked at her and then flew away. Right after that, a lady who she had never seen before walked in and asked if she was okay. Brownlee felt compelled to tell her the story, and afterwards she left, but returned an hour later with a silver necklace with a bird on it. She gave Brownlee a hug and then walked out, never to return again. She believes Ernestine sent the bird and the lady as a sign that her son was doing all right. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, One thing that all employees have for Ernestine and Hazel's is respect. They have found that if they respect the establishment, they don't have any negative experiences. And there may be some unexplained noises or tinkling of piano keys, but nothing malicious happens. It's when you disrespect the bar and its inhabitants, they might not be so friendly anymore. Another story from Brownlee's interview was about a group of people trash-talking the bar and making fun of ghosts. So suddenly, the the lights start flashing and getting dimmer and brighter than the sun, and back and forth, back and forth, and it really freaked them out so much that they left the bar. Uh, Because clearly, they have never heard what happens when you speak ill of the dead. Right. So earlier we mentioned that there were 13 people who died in Ernestine and Hazel's, and the last person to have passed away at the bar was Russell George. George had been battling cancer and depression for a while, according to Brownlee, and she thought he just knew the end was coming soon and wanted to make sure he could stay at the bar. Russell George died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on September 8, 2013, and it said his spirit does inhabit the bar. After George passed, the bar was taken over by Bud Chittam. And until doing this research, I was unaware that he actually owned the building, and Russell George managed it and made it what it was. Gerald Bud Chittam was quite the legend in Memphis. He loved food, and he loved music, and he spent his life giving both those to many Memphians and tourists alike. Over the years, he played in numerous club bands, even at the aforementioned Club Handy. He opened over 50 restaurants in Memphis and made Beale Street what it is today. According to his music note on Beale Street, he was a man you don't meet every day. Sadly, Bud suddenly passed away on September 5, 2018. He left Ernestine and Hazel's to his daughter, Caitlin. Until now, she had run the bar like it had always been run for the most part. She made some maintenance improvements where needed and brought in local craft beer on tap. You can also order a mixed drink at the downstairs bar instead of having to head up and see Nate. The jukebox remains the same and the wall decor has not changed. The electrical box still displays the house rules as laid out by George. No dope smoking, no cursing, no freeloading. (laughs) E-H. And the spirits are still there to welcome you in. One thing has changed, though. George's office is now padlocked and no one goes in anymore. Hmm. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the story, Ernestine and Hazel's is now up for sale. It hasn't been open since COVID hit. They just couldn't risk their employees' health. But that's not the reason for the sale. Chittam said it's just too painful to keep running the business she inherited. She thought over time missing her dad would get easier, but it hasn't. So she made the hard decision to sell. But it's not just for anyone to have. 
She said she wants someone who will, quote, honor a dive bar and brothel's history. It's not just about selling. It's about finding the right operator, not somebody coming from Nashville who doesn't get it. <laughs> ha, high five. <laughs> and uh, right as we were finishing the episode, the Daily Memphian announced that Ernestine Hazel has a buyer. Woo-hoo. Dirk Meitzler. Metzler. Metzler. Something, something, something like very similar to that. Who has a difficult last name, but that's okay. Um, he's a member of the downtown restaurant group. Uh, seems to be heading up this operation, and he's keeping everything the same. Uh, it was part of the deal, so we think that's fantastic news. Yeah. Um, because I really want for Alan to be able to eat a Soul Burger, have a good drink, and listen to whatever the jukebox thinks we need to hear. I, I want that too. Yes. And there you have the story of Ernestine and Hazel's. We hope you liked the story we unearthed. Don't forget to like and subscribe, tell a friend, share on social media, shoot us a review. Yes, reviews. We love reviews. Yes. Uh, the next episode will drop in two weeks on your favorite podcast listening app. And also, we've decided to start putting out the episodes every other weekend or something very nearly close to that. As opposed to Wednesdays. As opposed to Wednesdays. Um, because we do both have full-time jobs and we realize that dropping episodes on the weekend might make things a little easier for us. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to do. So every two weeks-ish, there will be an episode. Yes. Yes. Yes, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> we promise. Yes. Check out our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901. Twitter at unearth901. Instagram at unearthmemphis. Or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. Questions, complaints, corrections, story ideas, just general chatter. It's all welcome and appreciated. Yes, and also if you have any stories um, from your own personal experiences at Ernestine Hazel's, we'd love to hear it. Or anything else. Or anything else, really. (laughs) Uh, But I I would really like to hear some cool Ernestine Hazel stories. That'd be awesome. (laughs) And of course, here is our disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility some of the info is incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we are not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. we got to get the Hot Wheels guy to do that. Yes, he'd probably do a better job than I would. <laughs> all right, thanks again for listening. Yes, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.